Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Inquisitive on Relay FM. This episode of Inquisitive is brought to you by Iconic, Squarespace, and Igloo. I am Mike Hurley. Today I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Mr. Dan Provost and Tom Gerhardt of Studio Neat. Hi guys. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. Good. So I have had you guys on Command Space with me, like the previous show, the the predecessor to this show. So you have already had your chance to to answer the what would you like to be known for question. So I thought today that instead of asking you guys to do it again, um, I'm sorry if that's made you sad, I would like (laughs) you to tell me what you would like Studio Neat to be known for. Hmm. Okay. Dan, you got an answer? Sure. Um... (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, what I would aspire to, at least, is uh, having a reputation of reliability. And by that, I don't mean reliability of the products, but more of a business. So, for example, if we were able to have a reputation of, oh, like Studio Neat put something out, I'm going to check it out by virtue of, you know, them doing something because it will be, you know, interesting or useful or delightful in some way. Uh, so that is, that's kind of my aspiration for Studio Need as a company. So, yep. Tom, now that Dan has given that fantastic answer, <laughs> you can tell me, what do you guys do? What are some of the decisions that you make or things that you like to think about to try and make Studio Need live up to that idea? Uh, I think we're really careful about what we put out Um, and I, you know, it's also a symptom of being such a small company, you know, we really have to be careful about what we spend our time on. So, you know, we're, I guess we're just really picky about what we choose to work on. Um, and so hopefully, um, that kind of means that we only put out good stuff, which I'm sure is not always true. And I'm sure it won't always be the case, but that's what we strive for at least. So if you haven't heard the name Studio Neat, I'll, I'll tell you some of their products because you've definitely heard of them. So Studio Neat are responsible for the Neat Ice Kit, the Glyph, which is the tripod mount and stand for smartphones, and the Cosmonaut Stylus. You've definitely seen these products, or you probably own one of them. Um, I owned both the Glyph and the Cosmonaut before I knew you guys, or knew that they were related in any way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, this is how things go. Great products and such. So, I want to kind of get an idea from you guys, um, and Tom, I'll, I'll ask you this um, as well. Where did your passion for creating physical things come from? Because you guys, you've made a bunch of apps as well. But, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like your focus as a company is around physical things as opposed to apps. And and the apps kind of support some of the stuff that you make. Yeah, um, it's just really fun making physical things. Uh, It's a really like the manufacturing process is a real challenge, but it's also really fun to kind of interact with like literally interact with big machines and also just like the machinery of industry. Um, And I think Dan and I both just really, you know, love the tactile qualities of objects. And we love thinking about how something feels. Um, So it's really fun to think about that in software as well. But there's, there is still something about a product being physical. Um, And so, you know, I think it's always going to be the case that we make physical things. Um, I think if we, if software was more profitable for us, we would make more of it. Uh, I think we find ourselves holding back on that front sometimes just because it doesn't really make that much. It doesn't 
make a sustainable business for us really. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. There's just something to it. I think Dan, do you have a different answer than me? Uh, no, not really. Yeah. It's, it's kind of hard to define, but just, uh, there's, there's something kind of nice about it. And I mean, ever since I was a little kid, I've always been just, you know, making little stupid objects. Uh, and so it's always been, it's always kind of scratched an itch of, you know, if you're a person that likes to make things, having a thing you can hold in your hands, there's something kind of uncanny and, and satisfying about that. So Dan, I'll ask you, like, because you guys, um, you, you, I've heard you talk about this before and you mentioned it then about how apps are not necessarily a sustainable business for you. Um, it seems like the focus these days is on apps and creating digital things. And, you know, it's been the future for many years and it continues to be the future of where people make money. So why do you think that you have so much more success with your physical products than your digital products? Um, it's, it's probably a combination of things. Uh, one, uh, one reason I think is, uh, and this is kind of like a, I don't know, psychological reason or something. P- people don't, there's a price gap when you talk about software and hardware. And so for example, people don't really bat an eye at paying 20 or 30 bucks for a tripod mount, but people freak out over the idea of paying 99 cents for a piece of software. Um, so there's just like business reasons that it works out better to make, uh, to make hardware versus software. Um, but yeah, it just, you know, this has been kind of talked about ad nauseum, but the software, uh, it's, it's a tricky game and there are a lot of factors and a lot of luck that go into it. And we've had Pretty good success, uh, I would say, but certainly not enough to for that to be for that to sustain our business. So you guys have maybe I'd say made your name uh, with Kickstarter. You've had some very very successful Kickstarter projects. Um, where did you find out about Kickstarter? Should I answer? <laughs> yeah, sorry guys. I'll just I, uh, I know what the answer is, and it's really Dan's answer, so you can. Yeah. Um, so my first brush with Kickstarter, I think it was actually, if my memory serves, I found out about it via Daring Fireball, but it was a hardcover book called Designing Obama, and it was basically a really nicely put together collection of all the design work that went into Barack Obama's. 2008 presidential campaign and all the logo design and just a really nice design book and so i saw it linked on this site called kickstarter and i it kind of the it seemed too good to be true this idea that i can just kick in 50 bucks which is how much i would expect to pay for a nice hardcover book and then if enough people do that they'll just make the book and i'll get it in the mail like that's that seemed so simple and and such like a crazy awesome thing that could happen so i i kicked in for it and that's exactly what happened a few months later i got this awesome book in the mail so that's that was my first uh experience with using kickstarter as a backer and then by the time you know a year later a few months later when we had this glyph design uh it was kind of a no-brainer to to try kickstarter ourselves so this go on on, tom yeah, so it's funny. I, I actually, um, when I was in grad school in New York, um, had met Perry Chin, who was one of the founders of Kickstarter. And he had came come to our like kind of grad school class. And it was like a program for people doing design work and technology. Um, and he was had this pitch. And he was like, hey, 
we have this new platform. It's called Kickstarter. It's really awesome. It helped you raise money. And my like was like, oh, that's too good to be true. Like, you know, that would be awesome. But I don't think it's going to work out, you know, eating my words later on the road. I'm just like remembering now that that like happened. Uh, so good luck, bro. <laughs> it's funny. I had the same like reaction as Dan, except uh, I didn't do anything about it. So it's funny. <laughs> so, I mean, what, what do you think is one of the things that makes you keep going back to Kickstarter for your projects. I mean, the Glyph raised 137,000. You know, you guys, I'm sure, had enough, uh, maybe potentially enough buzz around you that when you came to launching the Cosmonaut, you could maybe do it yourself. Or, you know, but you went, you did that with the Cosmonaut and you raised another 135. Then you did it with, the, you know, you did it with Simple Bracket, which was a smaller project. And in the Neat Ice Kit, raised 150. Why have you continued to go back to Kickstarter every time when you're launching a new product? I, I mean, I think there's a bunch of reasons. Uh, the things we really like about Kickstarter are not even really necessarily related to the money aspect. Um, one reason is it's about idea validation. So if you can put it on Kickstarter and if it totally fails, then that's actually a good thing. You didn't invest, you know, thousands of your own, thousands of dollars to to bring this thing into market. You, you kind of had the idea validated through Kickstarter. But more importantly, there's just this really nice kind of community aspect and a built-in mechanism to share your story and share specifically the creation of this product, which I think is really interesting to a lot of people. And it's a fun thing for us to share and communicate to people. So just kind of a natural fit. Is there a built-in, Tom, is there a built-in uh, marketing angle with mm -hmm. using Kickstarter that you benefit uh, from? For sure, for sure. Um, you know, when you uh, run a campaign, you can see kind of where your traffic comes from and how many of those convert into, I guess, like pledges. Um, and definitely, you know, a decent amount of that traffic driven to uh, like a campaign page for us is from uh, Kickstarter itself or some of the email newsletters they send out. So it's definitely a help. I wouldn't, it's definitely far from the only thing you need. I think it's probably, you know, 20 to 25% sometimes of our, of like the traffic coming in. But um, they are a really great help. Um, and I think it, it really helps, you know, people know Kickstarter as a, as a name and it's trustworthy in general. So I think it also just makes customers or, you know, backers feel more comfortable in general kind of, um, you know, taking a risk, which is what they're doing, which we're super uh, thoughtful or <laughs> thankful for. And I would, I would add to that, it seems to me that Kickstarter is kind of in a similar place as the app store right now in terms of providing marketing where, uh, let me clarify what I mean by that. We're like in the early days of Kickstarter and the early days of the app store, being on Kickstarter or being in the app store was kind of interesting in and of itself because there were so few projects and so few apps, but now they've kind of reached this equilibrium where it's just like a trusted, a trusted place to either back a project or get an app, but neither of those facts are interesting enough in and of themselves to like provide marketing, if that makes sense. So, you know, Dan, you mentioned about um, the, 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 the idea of validation and the community and stuff like that being worth more than like the money raising aspects. If you guys were to do this type of thing on your own now, surely you would keep a larger 
amount of money, right? You wouldn't be paying any fees or anything like that. Are the benefits that you get from Kickstarter, do they outweigh that cut? And are they continuing to as you can as you go down this path? I think so. I mean, we always, you know, we're, we're still, you know, continuing to learn as we go. And uh, we haven't, er, you know, we haven't put every project that we've done on Kickstarter. There's been a couple hardware things and some apps that we've just done independently. So we really just take it on a case by case basis. Um, but to more directly answer your question, the, the fees on Kickstarter are actually pretty minimal. It's only about 5% that Kickstarter takes and then another roughly 5% credit card processing fees. So that is, you know, I guess 10% roughly, but um, what, what we make up for that in terms of like traffic that Kickstarter drives, it, it makes that fee pretty negligible. And do you think that's going to continue to be the case? Cause you mentioned about how it's changing, like with the app store. And one of the key things that's changed in recent uh, months is that Kickstarter's, process for evaluating applications has changed and it's much more of an open door system for allowing people to put projects in um, so do you think that you know over the next say five years kickstarter is going to be any different to how it is now um uh, that's a good question i mean i i really trust in kickstarter as a company you know i've I've interacted with Yancey quite a few times and know some of the other employees. And I, I think just their heart is in the right spot and they yeah. make kind of decisions in a really thoughtful way. So I have total confidence that, you know, Kickstarter is still going to be around in five years and it's going to be functioning roughly in the same way. But in terms of, you know, adding features or changing this and that, you know, I'm sure they're going to continue to build out their platform. But yeah, I, I think it'll definitely be pretty much the same cool um i want to talk to you about the neat ice kit um which is your most recently completed project (laughs) um but before i do that i do have uh, one of our sponsors that i would like to talk to you about today and we have a brand new sponsor to relay fm today um this episode is brought to you by iconic which is a photographic tribute to apple and design Now, Iconic is a beautiful coffee table book that tells the story of Apple's most fantastic and gorgeous desktops, portables, peripherals, prototypes, iPods, iOS devices, and even packaging, all with the use of stunning and unique photography. Now, this book project began in 2009 when author Jonathan Zuthi decided that he wanted to start to photograph and catalogue his incredible and mammoth collection of Apple products. Over four years, the team working on Iconic took over 150,000 photos, choosing the very best examples to put into this fantastic 350-page book. To go along with the images, there are collections of essays from contributors such as Ken Siegel, Lauren Brichter, and Daniel Kotke, as well as forwards from Jim Darrenpool and Steve Wozniak. Now, I want to take a quick moment to talk to you about a product that I have loving to look at pictures in with Iconic. So basically, Iconic is this just huge book. I was so surprised at how big and heavy it was. It's it's like a coffee size, you know, coffee table size book. It's not the size of a coffee table. Um and it's it's just full of these fantastic images. And I was able to flick through and it's got like beautiful representations of not just like close up parts of imagery, but like it's got all of the uh, original Mac line all like lined up in a row and you can see them all. It has um, 
my first Mac, um, the iMac G5, and I was able to look at that for a little bit nostalgic. But then it also has some really cool stuff. Like one of my favorite pictures in the book is all of the iPod packaging, like just a, just a massive iPod boxes and packaging, just all in one huge photo. And because I still have all my boxes from my Apple products, and seeing them represented in this way and taking photos of is really cool. And they even have things like uh, pictures, beautiful pictures of the iPhone Bluetooth headset and the iPod Hi-Fi. Like so it's just really fun to just look through and just see all of these fantastic images of these beautiful products. And they've all got like. A bunch of them have little essays written with them or quotes from people. It's just a really nice way to enjoy these products that we've loved for so many years. Um, Iconic has been fully self-published and is printed on fantastic paper stock and makes the perfect gift not only for yourself but for any geek, geeky loved ones in your life. Now, we have a great deal for you. You can get 20% off on either the Classic or Classic Plus, which is made with even better materials edition, by going to iconicbook.com slash RelayFM. Thank you so much to Iconic for their support of Inquisitive. So go to iconicbook.com slash RelayFM. I think you get a real kick out of this. Cool. I, I own that book, actually. It's really nice. Oh, it's, oh. <laughs> it's, uh, it arrived in the mail today because uh, they sent it over for me. And, and I could, I didn't think it was the package because it was so heavy. <laughs> it's, it's really fantastic. Uh, I have very much enjoyed flicking through it. So, Mr. Tom Gerhardt, please tell me, <laughs> what is the Neat Ice Kit and where did you get this idea from? Well, uh, the Neat Ice Kit is basically... Uh, a kit for making fancy ice. Um, so, you know, if Dan and I were kind of became cocktail enthusiasts, uh, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And um, one of the things that you could get in like a really fancy cocktail bar is super nice ice, usually in the form of like a huge crystal clear like cube of it. Um, and we were really disappointed to find that you couldn't really get that at home. You know, it's pretty easy to make cocktails, even really fancy ones at home. Um, but we couldn't get the whole package. We couldn't get that nice ice. So um, when we were thinking about a new product to do, I don't know, about a year and a half ago now, um, we started thinking, wow, I wonder if there's any way we could figure out how to make some clear ice at home. And that kind of sent us on this long path uh, that eventually arrived at the Neat Ice Kit, which um, is kind of a kit of parts, of tools, really. So um, the most important one is a ice mold um, that lets you make a 2 by 2 by 4 inch brick of ice. And that brick of ice, the top half is perfectly clear, right? So you have this big cube of ice that you can make. And then we give you tools to help you um, turn that ice into the shape that you need for any particular cocktail, right? So um, the real fun one is to split it directly in half. And so we give you a chisel, like an ice chisel and like a little club. So you can split it in half with one kind of clean stroke. Um, and then you'll end up with like a cube that's crystal clear. And you can put that in like an old fashioned or some other sort of drink that requires a large ice cube for slow dilution um, and then also you could split up that chunk into kind of smaller chunks uh, for like a Tom Collins or something that has a you know kind of a thinner taller glass where you need chunk cubed ice for um, and then we also give you a Lewis bag that will help you crush ice um, so you know for mint juleps or things where you want kind of a lot of really cold liquid um, so basically it's kind of this fun kit 
uh, for making ice. And that seems probably super hipster and super fussy and ridiculous to a lot of people listening right now. Um, and that's kind of what we thought too when we were first kind of exploring this idea. Like, oh man, like this is maybe too silly. Uh, but um, what we found out like through the process of doing this and kind of, kind of being fussy about ice, I guess, is um, that it's really fun to kind of go through this process. Um, you know, usually making a cocktail is kind of a slower, uh, thoughtful thing to do in the evening anyways. Um, and we felt like adding this step of kind of ice curation or ice making uh, was really fun. Um, so that is what convinced us to kind of really do this thing and kind of push this over the edge into being like, yeah, okay, this like could be a product that we do. Was this kind of the, the process was fun, not just the tools. Dan, how much of this uh, idea would, did you have prototyped before going on to, to Kickstarter? We, by the time we were ready to launch on Kickstarter, we had the idea was fully formed, um, which is kind of a recommended thing to do if you're launching on Kickstarter mm-hmm. to at least you know have a functioning prototype of what the thing is you're doing. Um, but getting there took. I don't know, six, six months, eight months, maybe of just crazy prototyping, uh, just all kinds of ideas until we finally arrived at what was ultimately put on Kickstarter. And uh, beyond the idea, we also had um, quotes and manufacturers lined up for every single part, right? So we were ready. We had drawings approved, uh, oftentimes samples or production samples already before we went on to Kickstarter, just because we know there's always trouble uh, brewing in making physical products. So we were really ready. Actually, it's the most prepared we'd ever been for a Kickstarter project. Let's talk about that trouble. So (laughs) at what point in the process, in like the 30 or 60 days that you have a project up, do you start working? So you've put it out there and you've got your quotes. At what point do you start approving things, ordering things? Um, it really depends. It kind of never stops, uh, that's for sure. Um, definitely when you're running a campaign, there's kind of you take a break, or at least we take a break from kind of the production side of things uh, just to manage you know, backers and the communication and making sure that all of that's working out. Um, but as soon as we feel like we're pretty confident the campaign's going to work out, we start really solidifying, making sure all the drawings are perfect, making sure there's not any production problems we haven't come up, uh, we haven't thought about, and really, you know, kind of confirming to manufacturers that, okay, we're going to be submitting a PO pretty soon. Um, so I don't think we submitted any POs or like orders, official orders for parts during the campaign, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was a couple weeks after. I don't know, Dan, if you can remember. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. But kind of the nice thing is we, you know, we were fully funded, I think, on the second day. So even though that the money doesn't disperse until 14 days after the campaign ends, we at least have a confidence moving forward that, you know, OK, this is going to be funded so we can start to kind of have more serious conversations with the manufacturers. So I want to I want to talk about delays, if you'll allow me to. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Please do. So, We're used to them. <laughs> tell me what happened with the, the, the neat ice kit. So when you, um, you'd you had some delays in previous projects, basically every Kickstarter 
project I've ever backed has been delayed in some form. And that's because this stuff is really, really difficult to do. Things will get in the way. There will be things that go wrong, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of that. When you were coming up to, to plan the neat ice kit, did you put a buffer in place for to, to think, oh, well, we reckon we'll have this done in January, but let's just say April? Yeah, uh, so not only do we put a buffer, we thought we put a huge buffer. So um, when the campaign ended, or even like a couple, like a month after the campaign, we were thinking, oh, we might be able to, if we're really lucky and hit the timing right, fulfill this thing by Christmas. And we ended up not fulfilling it by, uh, I guess, July. Um, and But we had put for our goal April on the campaign. So we were really pretty confident um, about our timeline. We we're like, we've given ourselves a huge window. like Because we preach that to people all the time. Like, give yourself a huge window. Things always go wrong. So we knew that advice. Um, and so we took that advice. But we still did not give ourselves enough of a window. Um, and so basically... The, the really super frustrating thing was um, we had all of the parts needed to fulfill the neat ice kit in the warehouse by January, except for one of the parts. Wow. So we were basically ready to go in every way, except for one part that it was the part that ended up having the problem. So, you know, it's kind of, you know, ends up being super frustrating. You know, every single link in that chain can be there, except for maybe one that has the problem and then you're kind of delayed. So... That's why this stuff is so tricky is, you know, you might be making, you know, a thousand decisions and, a th- you know, 999 of those go right, but the one doesn't and then it, you know, holds up everything. So it's just, you know, it's one of those things we've learned to kind of expect that, but it's always hard to communicate that to backers and it's always disappointing. I want to come back to the communication because I think it's really interesting. Um, but Dan, what was the part? Uh, it was the f- the foam insulation that surrounds uh, the silicone piece, which is you know what the water is poured into to create the ice. Um, so like so the most important part, basically. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was uh, it was frustrating because naively looking at it, like it seems like such a simple part, and you know you experience foam objects all the time whether it's you know an armrest in your car or you know whatever like it didn't seem like it was that hard but again that's kind of what tom spoke about is uh stuff happens delays happen so yeah and dan when you find out you've got some sort of manufacturing problem or i I believe i remember from your updates it was like a quality assurance problem you for you could you weren't getting good enough yield if i remember correctly right what, yeah. what do you do when, when you when you are told something like this? What is your sort of like first your emotional reaction, and then two, what sort of steps do you start to take? Yeah, first we just cry into a pillow yep. for a while. Yep. And then, <laughs> we have the uh, special delay pillow that we bring out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just it boils down to problem solving. It's you know, it's it's part of the design process. So yeah, you just uh, you know you ask questions, you see if we can try different things, you try to get to the bottom of what is actually causing these problems and can we, you know, can we maybe rejigger the geometry or do any number of things to, uh, to el- eliminate them. But yeah, I mean, bottom line, it's, it's just uh, problem solving and kind of a back and forth with the manufacturer to see how we can, uh, how we can get through it. Yeah. That's, um, that's something that I think we, we definitely didn't kind of expect or know about when we started uh, interfacing with like 
industry, I guess, and I think it's definitely something that is uh, completely misunderstood, like in the public, is, um, you know, everyone thinks of, you know, there's a designer out there, he makes some drawing, um, you know, maybe it might even be a digital 3D model, sends it to a manufacturer, and the manufacturer uses some fancy machine to make that perfect object over and over and over again perfectly. Um, but in reality, what happens is you make a perfect drawing as the designer, you send it to the manufacturer. Um, even if they approve that perfect drawing, they use a machine that has to be calibrated and changes all the time. And then they're using a process that changes over time, right? So for the instance with the neat ice kit foam mold part that gave us so much uh, problems, we had the design done and production samples approved in November, or I guess early December of 2013, right? So that is supposedly the kind of part that you sign off on made by the same machine that's gonna make the you know 5,000 parts. It should be exactly identical. Um, but what happens in, in manufacturing processes are, um, you know, a lot of heat is generated, the molds wear out. There's all kinds of uh, kind of side effects that happen when you're producing something in like, you know, the order of thousands, right? And so there's a whole nother design process that happens as a designer when you're taking a product or design through manufacturing. And the unfortunate thing is uh, you can kind of learn to anticipate some of those problems, but these problems always come up um, that you have to then, you know, design around. So all the time, our products change slightly after they go into production. And they're usually really subtle things that most consumers probably wouldn't even notice, but they're the things that Dan and I, you know, freak out about. And it's also the stuff that, say, a company like Apple are masters at, right? So if I hand an iPhone to uh, someone who's really experienced with injection molding or uh, milling of aluminum, they marvel at the iPhone because they know the little details that Apple has to do to get that right over and over again are kind of insane. Um, and so, yeah, it's just really interesting. There's this hidden design process and Dan and I really try to expose that design process to our backers because we think it's super fun and interesting. Uh, and it's kind of a mystery in some ways. Dan, Obviously, you guys are a, are a pair. It's the two of you that, that run Studio Neat. When these sorts of things happen, when disasters happen, is there one of you that, that is, takes action faster than the other? Is there one of you that will deal with these types of scenarios? Do you have, like, is there one of you that, that works better in those sort of environments? It depends on what it is, but interfacing with the manufacturers is pretty much Tom exclusively. So the way it works is, you know, we have a problem and Tom and I will discuss it, you know, privately, just the two of us and kind of, and I'll offer up suggestions of, oh, hey, can they try this? Can they do this? And I think that's actually kind of good coming from my side is I have like more of a naive uh, expertise <laughs> in a lot of manufacturing Why can't they just things. Fix it? <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, that might help just having that perspective. But we just yeah, we chat about it and then Tom is the one that is kind of communicating back to the to the vendors and the manufacturers. And then how does I mean I mentioned we come back to this. How does the communication part work? How do you decide to communicate to your backers that there's delays? How often do you communicate? What sort of tone do you take when you're doing it? Yeah, so that is so I guess that's my role then is kind of more the front end like communicating to backers and sending the emails and all that sort of thing. And so again that's just uh 
Tom and I chat about it and just come up with a, a consensus of what we think, you know, feels right and correct. And that's pretty much it. There's not much of a science to it. It's more of just like us chatting over FaceTime and uh, coming up with what we want to do. I would say, though, that we have learned in the like, I think over, you know, we've had delays and kind of had to deliver bad news several times during Kickstarter campaigns. Um, and I think we have as we have learned to expect those things and deal with them emotionally better, uh, we've we've learned to communicate better about those problems to backers. Um, because especially, you know, because there's comments attached to all these updates and things like that, it's very easy for kind of sentiment to be swayed very easily by, you know, individuals. Yeah. Um, and so there is kind of a dance. It's not very political. I mean, Dan and I are super straightforward with all this stuff, and I think that's the way you should do it. But, um, you know, say we have a problem, it, it, it seems to work out better for us if we talk, if we're really clear about what the problem is, what we're doing to address it, you know, kind of just say everything we know and try to be upfront and don't leave people guessing. Um, because then, you know, a couple commenters might get on and kind of, you know, get angry or frustrated or, you know, whatever. Um, and that could kind of lead things off the rail sometimes. So it, it is interesting. It is kind of like this political PR thing in a way. Um, but we just choose to try to be as like honest and straightforward as possible. That seems to like kind of be the best course. But um, it definitely is. All of our updates are very thoughtful, um, even when it's good news. Um just because we've learned you got to set expectations. So I want to talk about one of my favorite things about the Neat Ice Kit, which is the packaging that you guys put together. But before I do that, I want to take another quick break and thank our second sponsor for this week's episode of Inquisitive, and that is Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that make it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code QUESTION at checkout. A better web starts with your website. If you're listening to all of this and you're inspired to go out and start your own thing, maybe you want to start a blog or a podcast, maybe you have an idea and you want to sell a product in an online store, then there's no better place to turn than Squarespace. They give you all of the tools that you need to allow you to quickly and easily get your project live on the internet. Squarespace provide a full package. They give you the control to create something you love that looks amazing and professional. You have access to beautiful looking, professionally designed, mobile responsive templates, and powerful but simple to use page building tools which allow you to make your pages of your website look exactly the way you want with a drag and drop page building system. Squarespace feature Typekit and Google Fonts right out of the box. This allows you to select a truly beautiful typeface for your website or blog and they integrate with a bunch of your favorite social services like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and many more so you can push content out to them but you can also bring content in. Like for example if you want to feature a, a gallery of images and you want that to be from your Instagram feed, where you can just drag and drop a, a content block, which is in the Instagram block, onto the page. You can resize it the way you want, and you can fine-tune how you want the images to be shown, and it will show up on your site. Or maybe you have a folder of Dropbox images. You can just point that, you can just point Squarespace to that folder, and every image that gets added into it will go, be added automatically into your gallery and displayed to the viewers of your site. All of this is done 
in conjunction with, and well, you you get 24-7 award-winning support over email and chat. So if you have any problems, Squarespace are always there for you. And they have teams located in New York City, Portland, and Dublin. And this is what allows them to be truly 24-7 as they have teams located on both sides of the Atlantic. <laughs> they have a selection of awesome apps as well that can help you manage your site, check your stats, and so much more. Everything, as I said, is super simple, super easy. It's all drag and drop, and you can also add your own store to Squarespace if you want. Squarespace Commerce comes with every single site. You just enable it, and it allows you to sell physical or digital goods. It integrates with a bunch of services like Stripe for payments, ShipStation for shipping, and you get a really cool interface that allows you to manage all of your orders, set up all of your product products and stuff like that. You can start a free trial out right now with no credit card required, and you can start building your website on Squarespace today. When you decide to sign up, make sure that you use the offer code QUESTION. Not only is that going to get you 10% off your first purchase, you'll also be showing your support for Inquisitive and RelayFM. We thank Squarespace for supporting us, so you should go support them too. As Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. So when I received my Neat Ice Kit, which I was very excited about, I was really surprised um, at how good the packaging was. Not that I didn't expect it from you guys, but it's one of those things. Packaging of a product is a, is like a nice to have because ultimately the the box, the sort of the outside cardboard box, is probably going to get thrown away. So why do you spend time and money and effort into creating something that looks fantastic, has a real nice tone, and there's even like some really cool instructions and stuff like that. Why do you guys take so much time to make that experience so nice? And I'm going to throw it to you, Tom. Well, uh, I think for one, Dan and I love that stuff as much, I think, as anyone does. Uh, you know, you when you were talking about uh, the like Apple packaging with the first sponsor read, it's like, yeah, that stuff is so awesome. Uh, and I think so. I think part of it is just like personally, we, we love that stuff. Um, but I would say the bigger reason is we love that you love the packaging, right? Um, and and that is exactly the kind of thing we want to be known for. Um, like thinking about as much stuff as we can and being thoughtful and basically just bringing delight to your life, right? Um, so although, you know, it's easy to skimp on that stuff, uh, it, it also, we think, really shows when you don't skimp on it. Um, so, you know, and it's funny because we try to be really efficient with our packaging as well and, and thoughtful. Um so the cool thing about the Neat Ice Kit packaging is um, the box that gets shipped to you in the mail uh, is designed to be the actual box that the Neat Ice Kit comes in. So typically when you have a product, you design a product, uh, it has its own fancy printed box. And then when it's put through the mail, it's put in another cardboard box, right? And you have to open two cardboard boxes. Um, so with this, for the, for the Neat Ice Kit, we designed it um, to where you could ship the, the real box. And I we think that customers really uh, appreciate that. I think it'd be something that would be easy to kind of write off, um, but it's just something that we think everyone notices and they think they appreciate. So uh, it's totally worth it for us to do so. And it's funny because in reality, that's cheaper in the long run for us. It takes a lot more planning and thought, but um, it's more it's kind of cheaper. So it's really a win-win if you're willing to put the energy into it. And which one of you designs all of this stuff if if you guys do it i don't know if you have somebody help you with it yeah it's so graphic design stuff 
is we typically like to, well, it depends on what it is, but we often will seek outside help for that. Um, so for example, like our, our new website that we just redesigned, like our friend Caroline, who's a really good graphic designer, uh, we hired her to, to take a pass at that. Um, and the, the, the neat ice kit packaging was kind of a hybrid. Uh, we hired this guy, uh, Steven to, to design those drink recipe cards. Yeah. Oh, they're fantastic. But I love it, those so much. Oh, uh, thank you. Uh, or thanks to Steven, actually. Uh, the, uh, that one's kind of interesting. We, we, he had designed some posters that we just happened to stumble upon on the internet. And so we, you know, emailed him and we're like, Hey, we really like this design style. Would you be willing to kind of like turn these into recipe cards basically? Um, and so that was that. And then he, and then we kind of worked together with him on the, the little instructional insert and the outside packaging. So we basically kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of wireframe kind of what we want to be on the packaging. And then we have a graphic designer usually, uh, do the, the final touches. Yeah. It's really a strange process for us because you know, we do quite a bit of our own graphic design, um, but we found that Dan and I just end up arguing about like silly things like font choices and stuff. <laughs> like it, it just is super slow. Um, and so what, yeah, it's really, we, we really have fun working with pro graphic designers because um, we find it's really easy because we speak their language. So, you know, we will art direct really heavily, you know, what we want them to do. And then it'll usually just take a couple rounds of design uh, for us to arrive at the right thing. And then sometimes we'll even take the file from them and kind of tweak them again. Um, so this is really weird kind of incestuous design process, which I don't, I think designers like it, but may, I don't know. I, but uh, for us, it's really fun. Um, and so if we could do that all the time, we would. Um, but, you know, there's just constraints of time and money typically with that. But, um, but yeah, it's this weird cooperative process. Uh, and that's kind of the only thing we outsource we outsource on the design front is like 2D graphic design. Uh, pretty fun. So the Neat Ice Kit is up for general sale now at studioneat.com along with some of your other products like the Glyph and the Cosmonaut. Do you have like a warehouse with a bunch of drones in it? Like how do you manage that? <laughs> how does that process work now? Are they sitting in Dan's garage? Like what's happening? Yeah, so all of our... from. From the very beginning with the Glyph, we decided to outsource order fulfillment. Um, so all of our stuff is sitting in a warehouse, not in our garages. Uh, so yeah, so when we, I guess to rewind to our first Kickstarter, when we did the Glyph, we we had a tier where you could get a 3D printed prototype like a month in advance, basically. And 500 people backed for that reward. And, and those, <laughs> yeah. And exactly. so those, yeah, so those we, we fulfilled by hand and basically just stuffing envelopes and filling out customs forms by hand. And that was a really good indicator that it was not going to be sustainable to try to do order fulfillment ourselves moving forward, especially when we had, you know, 5,000 orders of the, the regular glyph kind that's, of queued up. That's what that picture is, right? On the bottom of your homepage is you guys putting glyphs into bags. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's us. We had to uh, use like a heated soldering iron to melt the 
3D printed plastic to get the tripod thread to that's basically how we attached the two. Uh, uh-huh. So yeah, it was it was that, and then on top of that, all of the the order fulfillment. And so uh, that was good. I mean, I'm glad we did that because it made us very confident in our decision to <laughs> to outsource the order fulfillment. Um, so we used a com- where we use a company called Shipwire, and they have warehouses all over the world. And so we currently have inventory in two houses, two warehouses in the U.S. and then one in the U.K., which is where all the international orders ship from. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, um, for the neat ice kit. We hired a different uh, fulfillment company called Amplifier, and they're here in Austin. And <clears throat> sorry, let me take a drink of water real quick. <laughs> this this bit makes oh. Dan really emotional. Are you, gonna, right. are, you are you editing uh, this show, or is it pretty raw like uh, the tape? Usually, but I'm going to leave that bit in just because oh, nice. now you, you gotta, asked, and it made it it makes it more fun. You got to put a mark down. <laughs> Okay, Uh, so we hired uh, Amplifier to, and they're here in Austin, and we basically did that because two reasons. We liked it being here in Austin, so we could, because the Neat Ice Kit was so much more complex than any of our others in terms of assembly and all these different parts, we wanted to be on hand so we could could do quality control and make sure everything was happening as it should. And then they also have the ability to assemble the kits, so all the raw, raw parts are sent to Amplifier. They store them, and then when it's time to build kits, they have you know assemblers that put them all together into kits. That must make uh, a difference to your international ordering process, though, right? Now, if they're all coming from the States. It does. It does. It's very expensive. Um, and I think we will... We knew that was going to happen coming into the Kickstarter, um, and we're you know debating now <laughs> whether we should mitigate that. Um, but what's kind of silly is... You know, we even if we shipped a whole bunch of neat ice kits to, you know, let's say the UK warehouse, it would definitely be cheaper shipping them out of the UK, but it would cost quite a bit of money to get them there in the first place. So it's kind of a it's kind of a tricky problem, but uh, I think we'll figure out a solution pretty soon here. After you guys create your projects, you sell them on Kickstarter and then you move them into stock. Tom, how does that change your business? Because now you have more and more items to to deal with and you don't necessarily manage them on a day-to-day basis, but I'm sure that there's a lot of work that still needs to go into keeping those things ticking over. Yeah, uh, and that's definitely a challenge. Dan and I have yet to figure out um, what we're going to do. So, you know, pretend it's 10 years from now, Studio Needs still around and we have, what, like 10 or 20 more products. Um that's not going to work for us probably. Um, and so, yeah, we don't know what that means for us. If it means, um, you know, we have to just discontinue some products, if we have to eventually hire some more help in some ways. Um, because, yeah, it, it is really hard. Not only hard dealing with products that are maybe five years old or something, um, but also our Dan and I's main focus is really developing new products. That's what we love to do. Um, and so we always have this kind of, tug of war in between the energy we need to put back into the products we already have, be that like marketing, you know, uh, redesigns, manufacturing, all that stuff, and then developing the new product. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a real challenge and I don't know exactly what we're going to do. Um, I'm sure it'll be different for different products, but yeah, it definitely kind of changes the game once you have these products you have to maintain. Uh, luckily, we have set up a very good system in terms of 
how the orders are go through our system and then fulfilled automatically. So we outsource all that we can in terms of order fulfillment and you know bookkeeping and stuff like that so that we can uh, spend as much time designing as possible. But I think that will catch up with us eventually um, and we'll have to figure something out. <laughs> so I would like to, to ask you both now one very quick question and it, it may not be a quick answer. Uh, Dan, what is the biggest lesson you've learned from the knee ice kit? Huh. Um, I would, the first thing that comes to mind is to just trust in the design process. Um, if I think back to where we started with the neat ice kit at which it wasn't even an ice kit at all, it was just this vague idea of clear ice at home mm-hmm. and, and where we ended up, it, it's just really kind of an encouraging lesson for me and that if we kind of stick with the design process and stick with our intuition and kind of work through the bumps and the problems that will eventually uh, arrive at something that we're proud of. And what about you, Tom? What's the biggest thing that you've learned? Um, I, you know, same, uh, I would say, except that even like on the manufacturing side. So I think Dan was more referring to the design side um, because we've, we thought we almost didn't do this product at all. And then we kind of, stumbled on something really great and it changed everything. Um, but even on the manufacturing side, um, you know, we'll get there, right? There's always going to be problems and we'll eventually get there. And, you know, it is just like a confidence building thing where, you know, you, this was by far this. So Mike, this product, the need ice kit has 16 parts in it, uh, <laughs> including all the packaging and stuff. And so for us, this is like an order of mag- magnitude, bigger than our other products and so it was like oh crap this is a lot of stuff we have to deal with um so it was really great you know coming out the other side uh you know there was some bumps in the road but we got there so i think it is just like a we can do it and just to trust that you know we can solve these problems and and it'll work out so you've gone from your most complex of, of products to now I'm going to guess and say that the simple syrup kit is maybe the most simple that you've that you've worked on now this is your current as we are recording which is the 3rd of September a simple syrup kit has 16 days to go on its kickstarter and you have just under uh, five thousand uh, four thousand dollars left to go to to meet your twenty five thousand dollar goal uh, Dan, am I right to say that it is the most simple project that you've worked on? And what is the Simple Syrup Kit? Uh, yes, refreshingly so, uh, <laughs> especially coming from the Need Ice Kit. Uh, so yeah, the, the Simple Syrup Kit, as the name implies, is just a, a kit to to make your own simple syrup at home. Um, and so uh, most people, when they're making simple syrup, they it's you know it's equal parts sugar and water, and you and you boil it in, uh, you know, you boil it on the stove and then put it in some kind of container. And so we basically just wanted to create a much nicer experience and just like remove that little bit of friction. So the simple syrup kit is just a a nice glass bottle with uh, printing on the side to indicate where to fill the sugar and water. And then you cap it with a really nice pour spout and cap that we hunted far and wide for. 
and you shake it to dissolve instead of boiling. So it's kind of a cold process instead of a hot process. And once you do that, then it, uh, it, we also include a, a marker where you can mark the date on it so you know when it's going to expire because simple syrup lasts about a month. And that's pretty much it. So it also includes a funnel, so it's easy to add the materials to the bottle. So yeah, it's just like a really kind of nice, thoughtful thing where if you're into making cocktails and you make them often, then it's a really nice thing to have. So, Tom, you know, you, you go. Dana said that this is a, a simple project and by design. Could you have made a more complex version of this idea, or is this just the idea you had and it's the best way to do it? Or did you know? Did you like sort of pull back a bit and, and try and make this a, a very simple project? Uh, it went uh, it went the other way actually. I mean, um, we this we always thought that this project would be so easy and simple and little. Um, and one of the things we really loved about it is we realized we could probably make this product without engineering any new parts. Um, like we could find off the shelf parts and put them together. So that's the first thing. This is the first time we've kind of had that luxury. Um, so that's been really great. Um, but really for us, the way this product developed, it's kind of a funny thing, but um, really it was just the process of Dan and I making tons of cocktails and always using these really crappy bottles that get all crusty and gross when you make simple syrup in them and just being like, man, I wish I had a better bottle for this. And then like we would buy one and be like, yeah, this is a great bottle after looking around for like too long on the internet. <laughs> and then, and then we'd be like, oh man, if we just had some lines on here, it'd be easy. And then we would like, you know, put tape and use it for a while. And then we're like, this pour spout really is crappy or, you know, I, I wish we had a better one. And we'd spend a ton of time looking for a great, a great stopper and be like, Hey, we found one, but you can only buy them if you get like a thousand. So no, because part of us was like, hey, maybe we should just write a blog post like, hey, buy these things and you can make a really awesome simple syrup bottle. But the problem is you can't buy any of those things unless you buy them in large quantities um, as a consumer. So it really just ended up, it's like, hey, wow, we, we have this really awesome simple syrup bottle now. Let's see if anyone else wants it. So um, it's kind of this strange product for us where... Uh, you know, on the surface, it's really sim like simple and kind of there's not a lot of engineering or a ton of novelty in the design, but it's definitely something that you could not get otherwise. And we've learned that it's just really awesome to have. So, um, yeah, we are comfortable with it being really simple and we were just like looking forward to it being like easy <laughs> for once. <laughs> Dan, what lessons have you taken from maybe the ice kit or other uh, projects that you've applied to this one? Um, hmm. That's a good question. Uh, I mean, you can definitely see traces in our other projects. You know, we've started to follow a, a template. We kind of established a template for ourselves that we somewhat follow uh, throughout and I feel like we're, we're kind of continuing to hone it um, and it's kind of interesting there's little things like I think every one of our Kickstarter videos ends with one of us saying thanks for watching and have a great day like that exact wording uh, so there's like these little these little ticks that I guess are are present uh, throughout but yeah I think I think with you know to give a, I guess a general answer with each Kickstarter we kind of learn something new about 
either communication or how we're doing where our reward tiers or how we format the video and uh those those lessons i would i would guess are all present on the simple syrup kit you mentioned oh, I, oh go, go on tom i i just have a little random one uh so we uh made parts in china for the first time with the uh neat ice kit because we had to um and i think that was a big lesson for us in that it can be very difficult but also it is possible um and then none of the parts for the simple syrup kit are at this point going to be sourced from china but um i think that's definitely was a big threshold for us and so i could see that coming into play pretty soon so that that was that was nice difficult do you go out and see that stuff <laughs> uh we actually work with a guy um named josh who is our kind of intermediary he's like our eyes and ears in china he's a man on the ground that. that's right he's <laughs> our man on the ground and he also um you know helps us uh find vendors um so it's really great you know being able to have someone there who we trust in terms of communication especially with the neat ice kit stuff i mean it would have been an even more of a nightmare uh, without his help so that that kind of enabled us to get there. You mentioned the video, uh, Dan, and and I loved this the video you did for this project. I think it's my favorite of the ones that you've done. It it feels like it has a different style, like a more humorous and comedic style than than other videos that I've seen that you guys have done. Was that a conscious decision that you made? Uh, yeah, and thank you by the way. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I think I think it was conscious, and I think part of it had to do with just a self-awareness, like Tom was saying, that, you know, this project is uh, a bit simpler than our other ones. It's kind of a smaller one, you know, maybe a little bit more casual. Um, and so we didn't want the video to come off that we were <laughs> unveiling this uh, groundbreaking, you know, product. Uh, <laughs> From so the it, makers it, of the cosmonauts. It, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, you know, we wanted it to be a little bit, funny and a little bit lighthearted so you know it showed through that you know we weren't taking ourselves too seriously i guess so uh, i want to take um our last break and i still have a, a few things that i want to talk to you about with the simple syrup kit and some some other little bits that, that could potentially be in the future for uh, studio neat so our final sponsor for this week's episode are our friends at igloo They've been sponsoring all of the shows on Relay FM since we launched, and, and we love them for that. And you will love them because they are an intranet that you're actually going to like. Igloo is built with you in mind. They have super easy-to-use apps like shared calendars, Twitter-like microblogs, file sharing, and so much more. And these are all integrated into Igloo's platform, which is super simple to set up and configure and just make your own. With Igloo, everything is social and everything you need is built right in. So when you upload a file to Igloo, maybe you write a blog post or maybe you post that big presentation that you're doing next Wednesday, your team can share it around, they can comment on it, rate it and like it. This is just like the social apps that you're used to using every day. It brings something a little bit more fun and refreshing to the day-to-day -day, uh, when you're at work. With Igloo's latest release, you can also manage the tasks that are associated, associated with your content. So let's say, for example, you're trying to find the best spout to put onto a glass bottle and you're sharing <laughs> this around within your team uh, well you can say oh Tom has to go and talk to our man on the ground and that sort of thing and you can assign those tasks around within your group at work Tasks is the latest app to be integrated into Igloo's intranet platform, and it was just released to other customers with their most recent unicorn release which is the name of the uh, version 
Igloo's task management is designed with people in mind, just like everything else at Igloo. So you're able to manage your projects, your personal to-dos, and everything in between in one unified view all inside of your intranet. If your company has a legacy intranet built on SharePoint or old portal technology, you should be giving Igloo a try. Or if you just want to be more connected, more social, or more productive in your workplace, Igloo is for you. And it's free to use with up to 10 people. And you can sign up today by going to igloosoftware.com slash inquisitive. Thank you so much to Igloo for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. Show your support to them and us by going to igloosoftware.com slash inquisitive. So, Tom, does, do you think that the simplicity of this project has an impact on it, either positively or negatively? Uh, I, surprisingly, I think there was a little bit of a negative impact, actually, because um, I think some people perceived that um, it, it's like too simple and like not novel and like not worth the price tag, I guess. Um, and I think that's partially because we maybe could have done a little bit better job communicating um i guess some of the innovation in it um and so yeah it's it's been interesting for us seeing some of the feedback i mean in general it's been positive um but you know we kind of read everything and uh, and as you've talked about before mike you know we we kind of the the negative ones uh go to heart real easily um and so yeah it's been interesting seeing people being like oh, like, I don't get it, or oh, it's not worth it. Um, and I, we think that that's a symptom of it being kind of a little more simple, and it is, like, kind of on the surface, a glass bottle. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting. I think we uh, will think uh, again if we – about the size of the Kickstarter. Like, if we were to do another Kickstarter project um, and we were thinking about doing a small one, I think we would think twice about that decision. I'm not saying we wouldn't do it, but um, it would, it's definitely a kind of another data point to put in there. Um, and, and I don't know if we've really made a decision about that yet, but it's definitely been something we noticed. So I love your branding. I love the branding for both of these things. I love that they're called like, you know, you've got like, it's basically called the Simple Syrup Kit. And that's kind of, you know, it's, or I see it as like a, it's like a play on words because yes, it's simple syrup, but it's also super simple to like, it's a, <laughs> it's a simple thing to do. Do you think uh, that this branding, Dan, has any impact on that? Do you think that there is a, a different way to brand it to maybe have, have it make it look different? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess there, there's certainly, you could do something different, um, but I, this kind of was always the name for it. I don't even know if we ever considered anything else. Yeah. I think it just it felt wrong in some ways to kind of invent a name for it, I guess. Like, you know, like the Glyph or the Cosmonaut, for example. Like, it seemed like it didn't need that. We could just call it the Simple Syrup Kit and it's self-explanatory. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure about that one. Your pricing, uh, like the, the, the backer levels are interesting to me in, in this in this case and you kind of mentioned a video and you've mentioned here that like really this was a case to get into a thousand because that's the limit that you get to to order the the product so you kind of have two tiers one is 25 dollars for one the other is 50 dollars for two um it's like so uh, my understanding is this is an order limit of your supplier has this changed the way that the funding process has gone for you in any way? Or have you, did you think about it differently going into it? Were your goals different to how they would usually be? 
Uh, yeah, in some ways. I, we were just lucky that it could be smaller. Um, so usually like a thousand orders of something is not enough to have something produced. Um, you know, especially for injection molding something, you know, you need to make 10,000 or something usually to, to have it work. Um, so the fact that this could be smaller uh, was really nice. And so we've always kind of thought of this project as being smaller in general because or it, it could be smaller. So um, the stakes were not as high. So yeah, definitely uh, it kind of that goal being small or being able to be small really informed, uh, you know, informed almost all of our decisions around the campaign and the video. And, you know, because if you look around on Kickstarter, there's basically, I would guess, very few, if not zero, physical products that have a goal that's small. Um, and it's just because of the kind of particularities of, you know, the kind of parts we could order. So, yeah, for us, it was it, this is like a nice little experiment of uh, what happens when you use off-the-shelf stuff and you don't have to, you know, make your own uh, parts so we'll we'll see we'll see how it turns out because <laughs> it's interesting it like this kit is like the perfect like sort of partnership for people that bought the neat ice kit right i assume that was kind yeah. of the idea you're like well you know if you've got this you're going to want this and that was kind of like because i've started making old fashions since getting the neat ice kit at home because i never made them at home before and the way that i make simple syrup is dumb um, and it's frustrating. <laughs> uh, so I would really, I I was very excited to see this project because it's it's going to make my cocktails better. Um, I don't really, it's yeah. not really a question. It's just something. <laughs> what what do you do? Well, I, I read a, so basically I don't want to have a store of it in like some random bottle, right? I, I figured I would need to, to get a bottle which is what you guys are providing me. So I read uh, online that you can kind of create sort of single servings of it by taking like a sugar cube and adding a little bit of water and putting it in like a beaker and shaking it, right? It's such a bad way of doing it. And I, I'm very excited to get the simple syrup kit to make my life a bit easier in that. Because I tried to uh, make a bigger batch and it was like boil it. And I was like, I don't want to boil it. And But yeah, so there you go. Yes, Mike. This is exactly for you. Uh, exactly for you. <laughs> it's just for me. I'll buy. It's I'll funny. buy a thousand of them. Isn't it ridiculous that we're three adult men sit here talking about making sugar water? <laughs> uh, but I. But the funny thing is, if you are making a cocktail every night, this is the thing that is the biggest pain: is the simple syrup. And so that's like why. That's where we get all this. That's where we think all the value like lies in this uh, simple syrup kit. So yeah, uh, glad to hear that uh, we'll be helping you uh, solve your problems. Because yeah, that's. Just, that's not right what you're doing <laughs> no it's ter it's horrible but i i don't really have another way of doing it until you guys just ship me this product um there's an interesting thing that i've noticed where currently the maths on your project are not really working out for you so and you, i'm sure you've looked at this but basically you wanted a thousand and you set a goal of twenty five dollars twenty five thousand as your goal but Currently, you you have more money than the amount of orders you would think you'd get. And I believe this is obviously due to international shipping, right? Because people add $15 for international shipping, like me. Did mm -hmm. you account for this beforehand? Certainly, yeah. Uh, you have to. Um, and, and really, shipping is... 
I think I, I, the bill for our neat ice kit shipping, uh, just to the Kickstarter backers, was I think eighteen thousand dollars. <sighs> so, um, <laughs> and it actually might be higher than that. So th- that's the thing that's really tricky about all this stuff is um, there's a ton of hidden costs with order fulfillment and shipping um, that you know are basically weight based, right? So this simple syrup kit. Uh, will probably be pretty similar in what it costs to ship uh, the neat ice kit, right? It'll be uh, probably $18, $15 to $18 for international shipping, just for the shipping costs. So yeah, you have to be really careful when running Kickstarter campaigns that you think through the whole process because it's really easy to get bitten um, by those shipping costs. Uh, they're, they're, and even, you know, in the US, it's uh, between 10 and 12, right? So for every neat ice kit or simple syrup kit that we ship, we're just eating those ten or twelve dollars, right? That's just like money that's you know we're eating basically, so right? So that's why you love international orders more than domestic orders, right? That that's that's what you're saying basically. <laughs> well, it we, helps. We're yeah. nice to pay, you know. We're we're happy to pay for you guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, no, but it's funny because it ends up being about the same. Like at the end of the day. You know, the shipping rate that we charge you, you know, quote unquote, um, on the campaign is less than it costs right. uh, to actually ship it. So it works out in that way. So you're going to end up when this project funds, you'll probably have, I don't know, 750 or 800 actual people that have bought one of these things. Um, I, you know, because because of like the shipping and stuff like that. Um are you will you sort of like take the rest of the outstanding and, and just put that into stock for when you sell this on your site if you do yeah that's that's what we usually do that tends to be our approach is on all of our past campaigns we always order quite a bit more than how many Kickstarter backers we have. Usually it's about two times as much. So like on the glyph, we had about 5,000 backers and our first order was for 10,000 of them. Um, and so that's what we generally like to do is, you know, the extra money doesn't go in our pockets. It goes into making more inventory that we can then, you know, sell on our website. Well, yeah, it makes sense, right? Because I'm assuming, because in my actual day job, I deal with paper production. Um, and one of the most expensive things in in producing like items that are mailed to people, you know, like letters or interesting direct mail packs, the main cost is spinning up the machines. And once you spun up the machines, the cost of producing the items goes down significantly. So, like, if it costs five thousand dollars to make one thousand, it doesn't cost ten thousand dollars to make two thousand. So is that why you guys do it? Because, it, you know, if, if you if you took the profit, but then you had to order another 5000 in three months, it's going to cost you more than if you would have just... Exactly. And, and a lot of times you actually don't have a choice. Um, a lot of companies have uh, MOQs or minimum order quantities. So, uh, you know, for instance, you know, if you're making... Or these bottles... Actually, the Simple Serve Kit is a perfect example. You cannot buy this bottle or this cap unless you buy 1,000 of them, right? So, you know, we don't have any choice. Uh, <laughs> and if that number was 2,000, you know, we don't have a choice, right? So um, typically, like for the neat ice kit, you know, we made extra parts and it is because um, there was kind of a minimum order quantity. Um, and really, that's what's great about Kickstarter um, is it can function as a kickstart, right? So, um, you know, for the glyph, 
it was really a kickstart because, you know, instead of Dan and I made zero profit from the Kickstarter, right? All of that extra money went into inventory for the company so that the company could then start to become a company, right? And like start moving and have some revenue and stuff. Um, so that's kind of how we view it as, uh, you know, money basically never goes into Dan and I's pocket. It always just goes back into the business uh, so that we can continue to do the stuff, you know, we do, right? Um, so yeah, it is tricky. The numbers game is, is tricky, but it does usually end up working out where we order quite a bit more uh, so that we can get rolling. So Dan, my final question today. Um, clearly you guys have, have, have fallen into the cocktail accessories market. Um, is this something that you plan to make more of in future? Like, cause you know, previously it was, um, the glyph and the cosmonaut were interesting sort of accessories for iPhones and iPads. Um, and now you guys have, have moved into cocktail accessories. Are you going to continue down this vein or do you have a brand new market that you're looking to get into? Um, it's definitely a possibility. Uh, we, it seems we do like to be pretty capricious in uh, what we decide to work on, but we, we have a, a couple other cocktail ideas, but they're in, you know, they're basically in the idea stage. There's no prototype or anything. So we're, you know, something we're continuing to think about, but we're definitely uh, open to exploring new areas and, um, we have some software ideas as well, so the that uh, that pull will probably never go away, even though it's probably not in our best interest. Uh, so yeah, that's pretty much it. I do have one one thing that's sprung to mind. I asked this of you, Tom. Do you get people like email you and ask you to make X? Like, please, I really need something. Can you make this? Uh, that has happened uh, some. Uh, sometimes that happens, um, and usually almost everything in the world already exists. <laughs> um, and so we could usually have seen something like that and could point them to it. It may not be the best version, but uh, yeah, we sometimes get that. Um, we welcome it, you know? I mean, we're always open to hearing stuff. Um, and sometimes, you know, we have uh, customers have ideas for products we currently have, like, you know, modifications or changes. And sometimes, uh, you know, we really listen to them and implement them. So yeah, I mean, we're... Always on the hunt, kind of. So if you have any ideas, let us know. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming like the extendable GIF was one of those. Yeah, that was something that we wanted for a long time. Um, and it was always just really difficult to, to design, get the design right. Um, so yeah, I mean, we just heard that from customers all the time. Like, oh, I would really want to buy this Glyph, but I have a case on my phone, so it doesn't work. Um, so yeah, you know, I mean, we definitely listen to everyone. Um, and, uh, you know, doesn't usually make the decision for us, but it definitely helps. Dan, where can people go to find uh, what Studio Neat are up to and what should they be looking out for? Uh, okay, well, you can go to studioneat.com and check out our freshly redesigned and responsive webpage. Very, very pretty. Launched. Very, very pretty. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then I guess uh, Twitter at Studio Neat is another place where you can follow us. And uh, if you are listening to this within 16 days of the 3rd of September, then you should go to Kickstarter and search for the Simple Syrup Kit um, and back it. Um, and then also go buy a neat ice kit as well and you'll have the perfect pairing and you, you, you won't be a fool like me shaking ice in a beaker. Uh, and all of the links to all of this stuff are on in the show notes today, which you'll find at relay.fm slash inquisitive slash three. 
Um, if you want to find me on Twitter, I am iMike, I-M-Y-K-E. This show records live every week. It records at 8 p.m. London time, which is 12 p.m. Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time. I'll be back next week with another episode of Inquisitive. Thank you so much to Dan and Tom for joining me. Until next time, bye-bye.